Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Romans. My name is Jonathan Chan. I'm so glad that you can join me today as we continue on in this series with chapter 7. But before we begin, let's start off with a video clip, and we'll be right back. The end user certificate for this aircraft states Burkina Faso. Nice. Very nice. Did you type this up yourself? The helicopter is to be used on humanitarian missions. Oh, so you're a humanitarian? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this is a military aircraft. Not anymore. Listen to the nephew. What can they do with military hardware but convert it to civilian ears? The only way you could die from this baby now is if a food drop hits you. And this stuff over here? Huh? Is that going to Burkina Faso as well? Ah, but to a different client at a different address. That's just a coincidence, is that it? You take me for a complete fucking fool! Not complete, sir. And while I hesitate to tell you your job, I must point out that when shipped separately, the weapons and the aircraft both comply with the current Interpol trade standards and practices. We both know that is an obscene, bureaucratic loophole that's gonna be closed any goddamn day. But it's not closed. And while certain people might interpret this cargo as suspicious, thank God we live in a world where suspicion alone does not constitute a crime, and where men like you respect the rule of law. I was as guilty as sin, but Valentine couldn't prove it. And he was the rarest breed of law enforcement officer, the type who knew I was breaking the law, but wouldn't break it himself to bust me. Well, welcome back. Let's quickly revisit a story in Genesis chapter 3, known as the fall. So let's go into it. Genesis 3 verses 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. This was how Paul and many Jews back then believed how sin was introduced into humanity which was also briefly discussed by Paul in chapter 5. Just an FYI, if you recall what I said about Romans, Paul always cycles back to the previous chapters. That through the serpent's distortion of God's good covenant with Adam, it was able to convince Adam and Eve, or better yet, it was able to assist humanity to justify and rationalize their deep desire for autonomy to decide for themselves what's good for them. That God's covenant, they believed, was choking their freedom and autonomy. They were convinced that God did not have their best interest, but instead he constrained them from doing what they feel like. And his covenant was this selfish way of limiting their full human potential. And when humanity turned away from God, they ended up in the wrong side of the covenant. And what was that? Ultimate death. So instead of giving life and providing them with a way to live their life to the fullest God-given potential in the presence of God, the covenant's consequence was imminent for all humanity. Ultimate death. 
Humanity, therefore, was on the wrong side of the covenant. Then came Abraham and his descendants, which Paul visited as well. God chose this family to usher humanity back into his presence and show the world what it meant to trust and obey God, i.e. to remain in the covenant, to be the light that draws humanity back and have the nations around them witness the flourishing and eternal life that was promised to those who are faithful and obedient to God. So God chose Israel to be the example, to let the world know what it means to trust and obey God and what the promises were if you do. How do you do that? How do you make Israel to be the good example? Well, God gave the Israelites the Torah, the law, through Moses, so that they can separate themselves from the world so that they can be noticeable. So for example, thou shalt not murder. Why did that command even exist? Because the rest of the world murdered and thought it was okay. Thou shalt not steal. Why? Because the rest of the world stole and thought it was okay. Thou shalt honor your father and mother. Why do you do that? Because the rest of the world thought that dishonoring your parents was fine and dandy. So the Israelites were God's people to provide an example to the rest of the world what it meant to trust and obey God, what kind of awesome life they will have when they do, and the eternal life that is promised to them when they do. All right. However, as we know, the Israelites failed miserably. And rather being part of the solution, they became the problem as well. Just like Adam and Eve, where through their rejection of the covenant, got them on the wrong end of the covenant, i.e. death, so too the Israelites found themselves on the wrong side of the covenant and the law. All humanity is now doomed to imminent death. God can't use the current Israel to usher humanity because that would be ignoring their sin and accused of being playing favorites. But God can't back out on his covenant with Abraham because God keeps his promises. Nor can he back out on the original covenant he made with Adam by removing the imminent death. That's just not him. He has to keep his word. So what to do? How can God resolve this? Well, for the past six chapters in Romans that we explored, Paul explained how Jesus provided the solution. And in chapter 7, Paul revisits not only chapter 5 and 6, but also chapter 2 with regards to the law. Paul says that God's covenant and his law that was given to the Jews was actually intended for good. We knew that. It provided guidelines on how to live a full life that promised eternal life with him. Yet due to humanity's distortion of it, the covenant and the law became a powerful enemy. That humanity was on the other side of the covenant. It enticed humanity to challenge it, question it, distort it, and the desire to break it, which led them to the wrong side of the law and the covenant, like Adam and Eve did. Chapter 7 basically explains how Jesus freed us from this vicious cycle. So let's begin with chapter 7. Verse 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law. So who is he talking to? He's talking to the Jewish Christians here. Don't you know 
that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in a new way of living in the Spirit. Back in Paul's time, and yes, even in the time of the Torah, i.e. the law, or the entire Old Testament, the status of women was always tied to the man whom she's married to, or if they're not married, the next male above her, i.e. the dad or the grandfather. We came across this several times when we explored Genesis, right? And also, we, we came across this in Luke. Women's very existence, identity, and worth back then were completely defined by their husband. If your husband committed a crime and you didn't, well, sorry, you're his wife. Both of you are toast. If your husband is a drunkard or a thief, you are too, even though you're not. Therefore, after going through chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul sees humanity like women, like the wives. In chapter 5, Adam was humanity's original husband. In chapter 6, Jesus is humanity's new husband. And Paul, in chapter 7, says for those who know the Torah, i.e. the Jews and the Jewish Christians, they should know what he's talking about, right? Whereas for many of us today, unfortunately, we use this small passage to pound judgment on divorcees. So the first four verses of chapter 7 have nothing to do with today's marriages, but a summary of the tail end of chapter 5 from verses 12 to 21 about how sin entered into humanity through humanity's original husband, Adam, and how Jesus became the new husband, the new Adam of humanity, as if the original Adam never happened. And in chapter 6, because Jesus is humanity's new husband, because we are now united with Jesus, just like a wife to her husband back in the day, not Adam, and whatever he's done, whatever Jesus has done, we vicariously have done it too, just like the wife and her husband, we testify to it to everyone through our baptism. And both chapter 5 and chapter 6 explains what Jesus did, what his death accomplished, and what that meant for those who have pistuo in Jesus. Follow? What did Jesus accomplish? What did his death accomplish? And what does that mean for those who have pistuo in Jesus? First, 
the fulfillment of the covenant's consequences for turning away from God's covenant, i.e. the imminent ultimate death of all humanity. Second was the fulfillment and the reception of the covenant for those who do trust and obey God, i.e. God's family. What was the promise of the trust and obedience to God? Well, eternal life, because Jesus resurrected from the dead. See, the Israelites were supposed to do this. They were supposed to be the example to show trust and obedience and what it meant to trust and obey God in front of the world and what promises they would receive if they did to the world. They didn't. So Jesus fulfilled the second covenant where upon trusting and obeying God, he received eternal life. Third, what else did he accomplish? Well, because of fulfilling both of these, Jesus became the new Adam, the new representative or husband of humanity. That for those who are faithful, or who have pastuo in the relationship with Jesus, they will also inherit everything that Jesus did and also receive what Jesus received and that the law is no longer required since really the law came about because of what the old Adam did and what Israel needed to keep them separated for God's purpose. Therefore, if the law is no longer required because the old Adam does not exist anymore, the power of the law no longer binds us because Jesus became the new Adam. But wait, there's more. If the power of the law no longer exists because Jesus is the new Adam, we are no longer tempted to distort the law to our advantage because there's no law to tempt us. Rather, instead of the law, we are given the Holy Spirit to continually guide us and consume us to become more like Jesus. Wow. Amen to that. See, we have to keep this as our foundation as we move along in chapter 7. It's what Jesus accomplished, the three fulfillments. We have to keep that in mind. Keep that in our rearview mirror as we continue on with this chapter. Let's move on with verse 7. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life, and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the com commands to kill me, but still the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. Recall what the conflict was between the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. In chapter 2, Jewish Christians believed that possessing the law, i.e. obeying the commands and doing the rituals part, the rituals part of, and the badges, are required to be God's chosen people. Now that Paul, through six chapters, plus a little bit more in the beginning of chapter 7, he's saying that because humans are incap incapable of obeying the law, and pursuing Jesus is the only way to be in God's family, 
many of the Gentile Christians are now saying that the law is completely irrelevant and we shouldn't follow it, i.e., they're pretty much saying, throw the baby out with the bathwater. However, Paul says, no, you are forgetting the law's intent. The law still has a role, but not the role that the Jews and Jewish Christians believed during Paul's day. The law is not about getting people to become God's chosen people. What was the original intent of the Torah? The original intent was for Israel to remain separate so that they were noticeable, provide them with a guide on how to remain faithful and obedient to God, and for the world around them to witness the positive results of doing so. But instead, Israel challenged it, questioned whether Torah was really good. Will a hot stove really burn me if I touch it? Or is God just quashing my freedom? Like Adam, this temptation to challenge is what Paul identifies as the power of sin. Sin enters into humanity to distort the Torah's good intentions. The law, the Torah, is holy and good because it reflects who God is. Yet sin in us distorts it and deceives us to think that the law and God himself is some selfish slave driver to quash our freedom. Just like Adam and just like the Israelites, the law is good, and it is good to obey the commands, but it cannot give you life and enable you to be in God's family. For we will always mess up, fall short of obeying the entire law. And that law will always remind us of our mess ups and sin will always entice us to challenge it. Let's move on. Verse 13. But how can that be that the law which is good caused my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself or I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. So in light of where we've been, the Torah, i.e. the law, is not bad per se. And also, it's not irrelevant. The law is good because it contains God's commands, reflects God's holiness and goodness. Rather, it's the sin in us that continues to tempt us to distort it and it deceives us, making us question whether the law's good intentions are actually good. Instead of seeing the law as a guide to help us understand holiness and to remind us that we are to trust and obey God and that the promises in the end will be immensely good, the sin in us constantly questions the integrity of God, just like how the serpent made humanity question the intent of God's covenant with them. 
Does God really have your best in mind? Or is he just keeping you away from the good life? And the passage I just, the passage I just read, Paul says, that is what keeps creeping up all the time. I do want to do good. I do know the right and wrong. But how come I keep challenging it? How come I keep distorting it, questioning it, rationalizing my own sin and my own disobedience, thinking that God is just giving me these laws to quash me, to constrain my freedom, that I cannot be free? How come this sin keeps on doing that? How come I keep on losing sight of the eternal promise that God has given me? What God has given to us is good, but the sin in us distorts and deceives it. Let's move on. Verse 21. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's love with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. There's a quote I want to share with you from John Stuart Mill. It goes like this. Ask yourself whether you are happy and you cease to be so. Let's face it, how many of us said this to justify our decisions? Well, God wants me to be happy, right? Why would he not want me to do this? That's sin talking. We tend to believe that sin is this dark, red, flaming, evil devil. But really, sin is a lot smarter. He would ask, say, did God really say you shouldn't? Why would he say that if he wants you to be happy? This is the power of sin. God provided the Jews with the Torah, a guide and a reflection of his holiness that promised them eternal life and flourishing. It also enabled them to fulfill their role as a light to all nations. Yet, just like Adam, sin in them Sin in us distorted the law's intent. And instead of providing a guide, they saw it as confinement or just a mere badge of entitlement without trusting and obeying God. They were aroused to challenge, challenge God's law, thinking that God is preventing them from the good life. But just like a fish who decided to challenge the ocean's boundaries and end up on land, Imminent death came on them. The law, like the ocean, keeps reminding the fish of its stupidity. Kept reminding, so the law, in this case, kept reminding the Jews of their shortcomings. There was no way out. No hope. Humanity was stuck. Thank God for Jesus. Jesus became the new fish, you could say. No more was there temptation to question God's goodness because Jesus is proof, living proof of God's goodness and love. Jesus showed all of humanity what it meant to trust and obey God, 
what it meant after when you trust and obey God, the promises that he received when he did, which was eternal life with God. He gave us that example. He showed us the way. And not only that, he, gave, he removed all of our sin and suffering on the cross. That's what he did. Hence, we do not need to question, nor are we needed to tempt whether God's promises or his laws or his, or his covenant is, re is relevant or constraining our freedoms. No, God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus and we see it right in front of our faces now. He's there, he has eternal life, he's sitting on the throne and he says he's the way. So follow him, have faith in him and we will be the same. Amen. Thank you everyone for joining me in another episode of Romans. Apologies for the background noises. There was a delivery truck for one of my neighbors uh, dropping off groceries and then they just left. So apologies for that. Till next time, have a blessed week.